You're listening to Back to another edition of Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yu, and I'm Rira Yu, and we are coming at you in the middle of the month of July, 2019, to talk about our June 2019 book club pick, Kafka on the Shore by Haruki Murakami. We got Murakami pretty much. What does that mean? It means <laughs> that. We delayed our conversation. That is true. We... Yeah, we've been delaying it for quite a while, but not not because we wanted to. More like scheduling happened, and then and then I was just like, I don't really know how to discuss this book, Marvin. I think I need like some extra time, and you gave me extra time, and I'm I still don't know how to talk about this book. I mean, how do you know it's not something metaphysical happening to cause us to um, serendipitously? Rescheduled this um, recording to discuss this book. I don't believe for a couple weeks or prophecy, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, so thank you everyone who have been waiting ever so patiently for us to talk about this book. Um, We'll do our best, Uh, but but yeah, since we've kept you waiting for so long, um, let's just dive right into it. Rebert, why don't you start us off on um, discussing this book? Uh, should I start off with the description of the book for people who do not care about spoilers and are just <laughs> jumping into this uh, episode? Yeah, I guess we should put up our standard spoiler warning. Uh, we will be talking about this book in its entirely um, and trying to figure this shit out. So uh, spoilers abound. If you haven't read uh, Kafka on the Shore by Haruki Murakami um, and don't want to get spoiled, uh, now is your chance to stop the recording and go in and read the book. Um, though I have a feeling... Even if you listen to us before you start, you're still going to get something out of it. Some people just like to have like knowledge before they jump in. They mm. don't read <laughs> Murakami books cold like we do. That's true. Okay, so the description of the book. Kafka Tamara runs away from home at 15 under the shadow of his father's dark prophecy. The aging Nakata, tracker of lost cats who never recovered from a bizarre childhood affliction, finds his pleasantly simplified life suddenly turned upside down. As their parallel odysseys unravel, cats converse with people. Fish tumble from the sky. A ghost-like pimp deploys a heagle-spouting girl of the night. A forest harbors soldiers apparently unaged since World War II. There is a savage killing, but the identity of both victim and killer is a riddle, one of many which combine to create an elegant and dreamlike masterpiece. Wow, I really should have read the book description, like the book jacket before I started reading because wow, it, like it reveals a lot more than I expected. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like the greatest hits, like it's the clip show of this book saying here's all the weird shit you're going to see. Yeah. Um, I wonder if that would affect your enjoyment of it though. That's true. I don't know. Like like if you knew there was a pimp coming up or if you knew there was rain falling from the sky or even cats talking to people or like a murder yeah because i like i did not know that this would turn into like a like a murder mystery Mm. i mean it was definitely like it didn't feel like a crime novel but it was definitely like there were a lot of questions around uh the murder of uh, kafka's father yeah and just the identity of kafka's dad i was like (laughs) like i was just like who is he like he's definitely not uh uh 
Johnny Walker. Like it, it seemed really weird. But um, <laughs> anyway, I, I guess we can just start off with this was our first Murakami book. We went in cold. Yeah, we have heard some things about Murakami's writing style, especially since we read books before that have been influenced by his style, like mm-hmm. uh, Rainbirds by Clarissa Gonawan and uh, Bangkok Wakes to Rain. Yeah. And I can kind of see the similarities, like you kind of tie in uh, different storylines and different characters doing totally different things, but right. somehow, like, as you read on, they're all connected. And, like, the descriptions of, like, mundane actions and details and yeah. pop culture in the world. Yeah, yeah. And and I can see, like, how all three have, like, the style of um, of being mood pieces. It's more about, like, how... Um, like the atmosphere of a place and like the feelings of a character rather than being plot driven. Right. So I know from experience on this book club that you typically don't like stories that are kind of, I don't know if open ended is the right way to call it, but like no, that no. don't wrap up, I guess. I'm, I'm okay with open ended endings. Mm-hmm. I think it's just like, uh, from what I have read on Goodreads and also interviews, because I really did try to like make sense of everything <laughs> after I finished reading, uh, it just seems like Murakami readers, they are divided. You either really, really love his work or you kind of fall off in the middle of reading and you're just like, I don't know, like everything doesn't make sense. And uh, and they're like kind of hesitant to read a second book. Right. So is this Murakami readers... On this book specifically, or Murakami people who read no, Murakami? no people read who read Murakami, right? And I feel like I'm more of like the latter. Like I was so confused while I was reading <laughs> this book, and um, if I was not reading it for Books and Boba, I probably would have quit midway through. Mm. It took a lot out of me because I had to like reread parts again, and I was also listening to it on audiobook, right? So I would technically reread things three times because <laughs> I would I would read it and then I would listen to it and then I would go back to reading it. And I st- it still didn't really quite make sense to me. And um, I wonder if that's just like the book because I heard that um, like the Wind Up Bird Chronicle was similar with with its kind of like dreamscape of a novel. Like it <laughs> it it is more like surreal and it has magical realism, but there is more of a resolution and right. and things aren't as loosely tied. That's what I've kind of read from Goodread reviews. So I don't know if it was just this book that I felt like like that I was struggling to get through. <laughs> How about you, Marvin? I I didn't have as much of, of a problem getting through it as it sounds like you did. I think at some point, I stopped trying to, because at, at first I was trying to like figure it out, you know, because the book mentions Chekhov's gun, like the trope of Chekhov's gun within the story. And I felt like everything I was reading was a Chekhov's gun, like everything was a barrel. Yeah, right? everything was like kind of like a red herring. Right. But once I got over that hurdle, need to pay attention to everything and just let the story go, I felt like. At the very least, the story, like, I was able to move along more quickly. Like, um, because like you mentioned, this book is something that uh, Murakami recommends that you read multiple times. Yes. Right? And yeah. I don't know if the first go-through should be the most critical. Um, because I think if you see this book as a riddle you, you need to solve, like, it's pretty dense, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, definitely the length 
was um, one of the main challenges for mm-hmm. me. Because, like, I think I think in the beginning, Murakami's prose definitely grabbed me. Mm-hmm. It, it's really funny because his prose is very simplistic, mm-hmm. whereas, like, his, uh, like, the themes in his book and, and just kind <laughs> of, like, uh, the plot of the book is not simplistic at all. Yeah. So I am grateful for that because I was able to read things um, without, like, questioning it too much mm-hmm. on, on the prose and, like, what he means. Um but at the same time, like, I was just like, okay, like, I'm like 200 pages into the book. <laughs> Normally, that's like, like, yeah. the, that's like the end of the second act for a lot of other books. But I was like, oh, my God, where, like, where is this going? <laughs> like, Well, I mean, there's dual storylines, right? There's one with Kafka and one with Nakata. And I feel like the, the Nakata storyline followed a more traditional path of like this is like a road trip story yeah it's like a road trip there's like there's a quest and uh there there's kind of like an urgency Mm -hmm. whereas with like kafka's storyline it it was very like very slow very meandering and it was kind of like it reminded me of rainbirds where it was just a person going to this new town and just a lot of vignettes with different people like morning routines and stuff like that. Yeah. So part of what like initially tripped me up, I guess, was trying to figure out what the link was between the two stories. Yeah, I, th- I think the first link that kind of clicked for me was, um, well, I guess like the first hint was, uh, I-, I think it's either the second or third chapter, you read these military reports uh-huh. on uh, the hillside incident. And yeah. a group of children, the scoop, a group of children who are like mushroom picking, they kind of go into a coma for a short time, except for one boy. And he wakes up about like a week later without any memory. Right. And I immediately, like once Nakata was introduced, I was like, oh, that's him. That was like the first link. And then once like Nakata murdered Johnny Walker. <laughs> and Kafka and then in the following chapter like Kafka's like oh I dreamed about like my father mm-hmm. being killed I was like okay like there there is something going on here I don't know if it's Nakata's spirit leaving and Kafka's spirit coming coming to possess Nakata there's something supernatural about this <laughs> I don't really know where this book is going is it a dream is it not like do we have like evil <laughs> evil living spirits it it was like very like like you said, like I went into the book trying to figure out like <laughs> what was the Chekhov gun, and like it's probably not the best way to go into reading this book. I mean, when I was going through that segment, I kind of felt because like um, as consumers of like high concept Japanese animes and video games, like we're no strangers to metaphysics as a storytelling like mechanic yeah right um so yeah i thought it was kind of like okay maybe nakata is a manifestation of kafka's like yeah that's what i thought like, too for inner like, yeah. demons or something well obvi- like from from the get-go i knew that the boy named crow mm. was like his super ego or, yeah. or just like someone in uh someone who kind of takes over when things get tough for kafka and he kind of needs like a right he's like the guiding yeah like you have to be the toughest fifteen-year-old, right? I love how. Well, I don't know if I, if I love it. It was amusing. I guess is the right word. Uh, how much time Murakami dedicates to reminding us how buff Kafka is? 
Okay, so that is where, like, Murakami kind of is inspired by his own workout routine. Because okay. Murakami is... Is he, a, uh, is he, is he, he a big boy? Yeah, he is a big boy. He works out alone. Uh, he has completed, like, three or four marathons. He mm. uh, does, a, he does like, a long-distance swimming thing every year. And, yeah, like, Murakami... Like Murakami, I have heard so many things about him without reading a single <laughs> single book. Like because writers revere him so much, especially his process. Mm. He started writing when he was 29 mm. and uh he was inspired to write um write a novel because he went to a baseball game and the team that he was cheering for like hit like a home run and he was like, "Ah, I can write a novel if that person can hit a home run." So he he started writing his first novel right then and there. I want to like read about the metaphysical journey of that home run and how that affected his. Oh, I know, his right? Inner I'm sure. Speaking. I'm sure it's like up there in a blog post. Anyway, um, he like he he is revered a lot by writers because of his process, and mm. his process is waking up at four a.m. in the morning, writing, uh, working on his manuscript for maybe five or six hours. And then reading a different book or listening to music. And then he goes to sleep at 9 p.m. And he says that he does this every day. His routine has not changed in like three decades. (laughs) And like that takes dedication, but also like, is he a robot? (laughs) (laughs) Is he an anime character? (laughs) Like who, like who does this? (laughs) So it, like you can kind of see that in Kafka, who's like, oh, I'm going to work out. Right. And get buff because I am the toughest fifteen year old. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you also see like he still sees the world like a fifteen year old. He all of his actions he kind of blames on other people. Right. I don't know if he blames it on other people. It's more like he believes in like fate. Mm-hmm. Like there is like because like his father tells him, "Oh, you're going to sleep with your mom and your sister." Right. And you're gonna kill. You're gonna kill your father, who's me. And <laughs> it's it's like he believes in this kind of prophecy, and he's like so determined to escape from it. But also at the same time, he's like, oh, like this is the only thing I can do. This is my clear path. Which is like, which is kind of really weird. But it's also a very teen thing, right? It's like you know your typical Asian upbringing, where you're told be a doctor, be an engineer. Uh, and you're kind of resigned to doing that, even though it might not be something that you want, but you think this is the only way to live. Yeah. Right. Like kind and, of and that, that trapping of like, as a kid, you're at the whims of adults. It's, yeah. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. I definitely got that from reading it. And also mm-hmm. it's just in a way it's like, oh, it's a terrible prophecy, but also it is easier to follow a set plan rather yeah. than like learn how to do things by yourself. I mean, was this book just a giant retelling of Oedipus? Uh, I don't know if if it was a retelling of Oedipus. Yeah. I mean, wh- what did you think about all the the Oedipal stuff? Um, I'm sure it's it's a commentary on like how like in our dreams, in our imagination, like all of the dark desires that we don't even dare to say out loud, kind <laughs> of like come true. Because uh, a lot of the gory scenes in this in this novel it was it was so visceral and disgusting (laughs) and same thing with like all the sex scenes too it seemed really like gratuitous and graphic in a way where i honestly wanted to skip through it all but yeah that 
cat scene was pretty that was rough rough yeah um and yeah like there are descriptions of like rape pretty much yeah right and that that's like also interesting because um because in that moment kafka is like i know this is wrong like after he wakes up from uh, from the rape dream yeah he's like oh well like I like I know this isn't real. Like I know I didn't rape her in real life, and I know that she's not my sister in real life. But that's what I thought when I was dreaming of her. And like it brings up the question of like, okay, well, is he still responsible for that rape if it if it didn't happen in real life? Like, yeah. is it like is it still considered like like a crime when it's just in your head? And then also it brings into question like us as readers because it's like, oh, we witnessed this happening. So we're kind of complicit in it as well. So it's a lot of like ethical questions that come up with with like with dreams and responsibility. And uh, there's also like a mention of one of the um, the Holocaust uh, administrators and how like, yeah, like, yeah, he didn't technically kill like physically kill someone but his plans his imagination to create like this uh t- this horrible death process it, it's the thing that made it possible so that's kind of brought in as an example as well yeah yeah there's a lot of philosophy in this book and like that always like really turns me off when i'm reading <laughs> like like i there were there were times when I had to put down the book and I just kind of like looked at Dan and I said, I think I'm stu I, I think I'm too stupid to understand the contents of this book. Like I know this book is trying to tell me something, but at the same time, like I, I feel like I'm at the fringes of like all of the philosophy that it's trying to teach me. I mean, I I think I mean parts of the book I do feel like it's kind of showing off like how smart I am. Look at how smart I am. Um, but at the same time, I feel like in the same way that like those high concept animes kind of do, <laughs> like they also try to explain it to you. There are definitely like exposition dumps within the book. Like the character of Colonel Sanders, who uh, is a, who is a concept, by the way. Yeah. He's not God. He's not a demon. He is a concept. But like him explaining that is kind of them the book trying to tell you yeah like don't like this is how you should read me as right this is this is what we're talking about everything is a metaphor in this book yeah and they say it as much in the beginning of the book and how like kafka's relationship with misayaki and uh sakura like that is also a metaphor for his relationship with his uh mother and sister who have abandoned him yeah and and, and it's just like okay i get that part <laughs> but did he really have to like project that in like into those female characters? I don't know. Just like just like, oh, this could be my sister. And then he still has like like kind of like sexual um not intercourse, but like he has kind of like desires. desires. Yeah. And I'm like, you like you are projecting this onto someone who isn't your sister, but like that's kind of like your kink. But he's, yeah, he's like a horny boy, you know? It, <laughs> he's a very horny boy. The sex scenes were just, I don't know. Like, I feel like those were not well written. Mm. And I, there was just so much penis. <laughs> <laughs> there was so much description about his penis. And like, and 
I don't know, like the female characters in this book also really like did not sit well with me because it seems like the purpose of these female characters are just to be like vessels of desire for the male characters. And it's just like, okay, it's kind of like a weird version of a manic pixie dream girl where they're like there to change (laughs) this change of man's life by just like having sex with them or like, I don't know. Yeah, our Goodreads member, Lauren, she wrote into our Goodreads forum and she said that this is her second time reading the book and that the second time through, the shallowness of the female characters really stuck out to her this time. And it was actually kind of a turnoff. I heard that that is like a, a thing in Murakami books, mm-hmm. that a lot of his female characters are just kind of there for like sexual desire or... They're just there for exposition. They're, they really don't have minds of their own. That is just like a generalization that I've seen in reviews. Yeah, like the female characters were definitely not as well developed. Even the trans character. Um, Oshima. Oshima. Like there was that scene where Oshima, like, would you call it a clapback? Yeah, like, it's, a, it's a clapback. Yeah, to like two, like, I guess, feminist um, advocates who were written if there was a like character trait that like Murakami slapped on them, it was just shrill, right? Yeah. And I thought that chapter really bugged me. Like Yeah, yeah. I, I remember like uh us talking about that for a while. I mean it's been over a decade since this book has been translated. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it it ha- it does show its age. And I kind of wish that like it wasn't two feminist advocates who are complaining about stuff like that. Yeah. I, like, for, for some There's reason... There's gotta be a better way to... Because the whole point of that chapter is to show that Oshima is trans. trans yeah, yeah. Is, is a gay trans man. Yeah. And also to show the narrow-mindedness of, of people mm-hmm. and how... like Because Oshima kind of like tells Kafka, like, those people scare me the most. People who are so narrow-minded and aren't, like, willing to accept mistakes and Mm -hmm. look into how to grow. Because those are the people who, uh, (laughs) like, if you look at our government now, like, those are the people in government and the consequences of their actions are very, very severe. I mean, not just our government, like, every Every government government. right now. Especially Japan. (laughs) (laughs) I, nothing not, not much has changed mm. um but yeah i just kind of wish that that scene was not written like n- written not at the expense of female characters especially like i feel yeah. like i would have been okay with it if the female characters in the book like misayaki and like sakura had like more depth to them like more uh more of like a personality to them. Yeah. They seem kind of really bland to me. Well, they're very like, they explained it that, you know, uh, Miss Saiki had her soul taken away from her. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Miss Saiki is all, they, they say that she's all memory mm-hmm. because she kind of like stopped after, stopped growing after yeah. after her lover passed away in, in the war. Not, not the war, like in a student protest. Yeah, and Sakura is just... Medic pixie dream girl. Yeah. Yeah. In a in a weird, weird way. But at the same time, she was probably one of the most normal characters in the entire story. Right? 
I don't know. Except I don't the part where she's like jacking off. A yeah, yeah. Especially boy. when she's <laughs> like, she's like, I know you're 15, and we're. I'm gonna give you a hand job because it doesn't count as having sex while I like have my boyfriend. Okay. And she, and then while she's like giving him a hand job, she says, "I wish I was your sister." And I'm like, "What? What? Like, <laughs> like I don't want to kink shame, but like it was, it was a weird moment for me, especially when I was on a plane." on my red eye flight and I'm <laughs> listening to this on audiobook and I'm just like, oh my God, <laughs> like I can't I was like, this is a really weird and awkward scene. And speaking of awkward sex scenes, uh um, his relationship with Miss Saiki like was definitely the weirdest relationship in the entire book. Because like I don't I don't, I don't I don't want to say I didn't expect it. No, I totally expected yeah. it. But like it it just see because I didn't really understand like where the metaphysical stuff was because he was like, oh, I'm having sex yeah. with, with like the 15 year old girl that is trapped inside this woman's body, and I'm like, wait, but still having sex with this like. So it's just like I don't know because at some point he says like, oh, like I'm. Like he kind of hints that he's like the lover who passed away, and they're kind of like completing each other in the in this like sexual act. And I'm like, I I don't understand. Like, is he like is the spirit of her lover really like in him? Like, is this 15 year old uh version of Masaiki like a specter? Like it? Like I don't really quite understand. Is this dream sex? Is this real sex? I mean. If you look at this entire book as completely centered on Kafka, like, does it even matter <laughs> what she is, right? Like, I think, like you said, like, the female characters in this story, my psyche, Sakura, are there just to, like, play a part in his... Awakening. Yeah. I, th- I think the part that really sit- sat, like, unsettling with me was the scene where... Miss Saiki is sleepwalking and he knows that she's not like fully awake and they still have sex anyway. <laughs> and I'm like, that's rape. And that is not mentioned as like something wrong. Yeah. And that really, really unsettled me. Also, like a, gr- a grown woman like having sex with a 15 year old. But he's buff. Yeah. He's the toughest fifteen-year-old. <laughs> well, we've been talking a lot about Kafka, so we can talk more about Nakata. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I guess like once I started seeing his story as separate from Kafka and not like intrinsically linked, uh, I think I was able to like get with the flow a little bit better because it's really hard. Like, I don't know if it was the same for you not to like read his story through. Like, okay, what does this mean for Kafka right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I definitely was searching for some kind yeah. of link and, you know, but, cause and effect. I mean, I think with Nakata's story, that's where you get the most magical realism, right? Like his, like you say, his story was a quest. It was an adventure. And he was, there are talking cats and weird brands come to life. And fish falling from the sky yeah. <laughs> and slugs and leeches blocking the freeway. Yeah. Um, I would probably read a book that's all Nakata's Yeah, story. yeah. I, I found myself thinking the same exact <laughs> thing. Um, because, or I, yeah, or I guess I wish it was more linked with Kafka. Like, more yeah. obviously linked, because then I would 
kind of read along being like, okay, th- this is going somewhere. Because I, like I said before, Nakata's storyline has more agent, uh, more urgency. Yeah. So it feels like things are moving towards something. Like something is culminating into a big event. Whereas with Kafka's story, it, it's very much like more meandering. And even when, t- when he gets into deep within the forest and he finds that spirit village i don't know how else to describe it but he's in that spirit village it still seemed really um like it just seemed to plateau for me i'm like okay he's here but i don't know why he's here and when he gets to leave like i don't quite understand yeah whereas with like nakata it's like okay like he has this quest he has to find the entrance stone and like there is more of a but at the same time, thread. yeah, but at the same time, I was kind of thinking both of these characters are being led by something, right? Like Nakata's actions aren't really his own. He's like following instructions pretty much. Yeah. Right. And almost just like maybe not like similar to how Kafka is kind of just fulfilling the, his fate and prophecy or trying to like. Yeah, there's a lot of like fate involved where people feel like this is the path that they're supposed to yeah. be in. And what did you think of like Nakata suddenly dying? Because <laughs> I did not expect that. And I guess like that's the whole point. It's like, oh, you can't like you think that you you are you have this destiny uh, to carry out, but you really can't predict human nature. <laughs> right. And, 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 like, I thought that was, like, a really funny moment when Nakata died. And Hoshino is just like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I mean, he he dies the same time as Miss Saiki. And it was right after their meeting. Because they're talking about the entrance stone. And, yeah. You know, they talk about how Miss Saiki is only full of memories. And she there's only, like, half of her, like, left in her body. Because right. her she she just kind of stopped developing after the death of her lover whereas mm-hmm. nakata uh you know he's he's kind of a shell as well like he has no memory and uh the all of the potential he had in his youth like that's all gone so you have two people who are kind of tied to this entrance stone and they're just kind of half of a yeah. spirit left like this world beyond where they I guess left a part of themselves. Yeah. And then it's just like when they die, it's kind of a nice resolution because it's like, oh, they're going back to the place where the remaining yeah. part of their spirit is. I mean, to answer your question, I don't know if I thought of anything. I was like, oh, okay. You know, <laughs> like I, he's dead. I guess like his journey is fulfilled somehow. Um, Because it was like, I don't know. I felt like yeah, with Nakata's story, he he was he was more. It felt like he was more a tool than a person, you know. And you you did get his like inner monologue and how he sees the world, but his ultimate role in the story was to, I mean, not even make contact with Kafka, right? It was like to make contact with Miss Hiki. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like also how. Um... Hoshino, like, he follows Nakata, like, yeah. through this journey, being like, okay, well, he reminds me of my grandfather. Yeah. And then, like, as their journey progresses, he he's just like, oh, man, like, my life 
has changed. The way that I look at things has <laughs> changed because I'm with Nakata. And he thinks that he can stay with Nakata like pretty much forever. Mm-hmm. And then he dies. And it's just like, okay, well, you thought that this was this was destiny and this was your path, but obviously I mean everything's a metaphor, everything right? Everything so is a metaphor. That's a metaphor for, I guess, you know. I mean <laughs> That's a metaphor for you can't expect like everything yeah. to go according to plan in life. Or to be like be able to lead it. I mean part yeah, part of it is like, yeah, you can't be just as Nakata was being led by some unseen force, Hoshin was being led by Nakata, and like you can't be led all the time, right? I'm like just pulling this out of my butt because I feel like this book wants you to go up your own butt with like theories. But I guess the thesis or one of the theses of the book was like get out of your comfort zone, right? Like because a lot of these a lot of the characters are people who leave home yeah and like experience things outside of what they're comfortable with right like it starts with kafka running away from home every single character in the story includes someone who's either run away from home or goes or leaves for the first time or tries something new like breaks their routine for the first time yeah yeah like stepping stepping out of their own world for the first time um, yeah, it really is a coming of age story if you just kind of strip all of the uh, ickiness, all of all of the ickiness, all of the complex philosophy that's kind of thrown at you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like labyrinth is something that is thrown around a lot in this book. Um, yeah, because like you have Kafka uh, go venture into the forest and like he's kind of trying to figure out what to do in 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 this forest until he finds the spirit village yeah and later on you find out that like it's not him it's not really the journey of him getting out of the forest that that is the labyrinth it's him like <laughs> him sorting through all of his like yeah parental trauma and like this oedipus complex like that is his whole arc i guess um yeah yeah (laughs) and like also just you know like it was a random thing that i noticed but his but his dad also is kind of similar to nakata and um miss saiki because he was struck by lightning and he's changed and it's like oh like is he one of those people whose spirit is kind of like right left behind because of this affliction of because of this incident I mean, is, is is that a metaphor for adulthood? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> and how um, Japanese middle-aged people are shells of their former selves. I feel like I'm a shell of my former self, and I'm not even 30 yet. <laughs> After reading this book. I don't know. I felt like something left me when I was reading this book. <laughs> like, you know, like how like in anime, like like you see like that spirit yeah. like a ghost of of like an uh, of like the character like leaving their body that's I mean, kind of how i felt when i was reading this did book. that happen before or after the cat scene um <laughs> you mean like the cat dissection scene yeah the, no no i think that, that's i think like the, it was that's... much later on when mm. i started to kind of lose grasp with the reality of this book <laughs> cuz like like it was really disgusting to read the cat dissection scene, and it was just like it was really weird and and like creepy and gory. But I felt like it moved the moved the plot 
along, if you can say there was a plot. Because I mean, th- because Kafka wakes up from like a short coma and yeah. like he finds blood on himself. So I was like, okay, I feel like there's a mystery of brewing. <laughs> <laughs> so I felt I so I didn't feel really lost in that in in that um first at the end of the first act slash the beginning of act two. It was kind of when Kafka is just hiding out in the forest for the first time. Uh-huh. Where I was like, I'm slipping. I don't know. <laughs> like, like I don't know what's happening. Because <laughs> that's, guess... that's when all the sex stuff happens. And I was like, I don't know what's happening, man. <laughs> yeah. This book is weird. <laughs> I mean, what are your thoughts on the Johnny Walker character? Like the, I mean, do you think that was Kafka's father or like some sort of like demon man? Well, I mean, it was a demon man. For it sure. was a demon man, and if you if you you know go with the logic of like okay, there are like like spirit possessions, and people are moving back and forth between the spiritual world and this world, and people are jumping consciousness. It could just be said that like a demon or an evil spirit or some part of his dad that is dark emerged and. That kind of like he came in the form of Johnny Walker, and <laughs> and I like when I first came across that scene where you meet Johnny Walker for the first time, I was just like, like I kind I kind of had to like reread it. I'm like, no, not that Johnny Walker, right? <laughs> I feel like, like, <laughs> like, I feel it's like the scene from like the latest Ghostbusters with uh with uh Kristen Wiig, where like the Ghostbusters logo comes to life. I was like, okay. Is this just like a dude jumps out of a bottle? A, a dude jumps out of a bottle. Yeah. I mean, that. so there's a chapter at the end of the novel that's not numbered, just called A Boy Named Crow. That chapter stuck out to me because that's – so that's the chapter where the boy named Crow does battle with Johnny Walker mm-hmm. in like the dreamscape. Yeah. That part was really hard for me to read because I don't really do well with gore and violence. Yeah. And I was like, oh, like eye sockets are being destroyed. <laughs> well, I mean, that's how birds fight. I don't know. Like, it felt like that character was written as if it was the big bad of the story. I mean, did you read anything? <laughs> did you read anything that talked about that stuff? About Johnny Walker? Yeah, the character Johnny Walker. Um. Well, the New Yorker said something about how, like, it's like a symbol of material desire and how, <laughs> like, like how that can be formed as something evil. I and mean, that's why Murakami put it in the form of, like, uh, like a, a brand. Cap- yeah, of a brand. Um, I'm not sure if I'm interpreting that correctly, <laughs> but I can kind of see the logic behind it, you know? But that that scene, the, the that chapter, uh, the boy named Crow with the epic battle, mm-hmm. like, I think that's the closest you can get to a resolution. Yeah, yeah, that's the closest you can get to like, okay, like something has been overcome, like something has, um, I don't know, like you you kind of see Kafka as someone who has grown up. Like there, there is some kind of like resolution to his arc after right. after he defeats this the manifestation of like his father, kind of father. But also a demon. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I'm trying to remember his motivation. He was trying to create a flute 
out of cat souls mm-hmm. to I'm, for, I'm forgetting i'm like i'm blanking on what he was gonna do with that flute uh, i can i can look it up so there really isn't a reason for him to build these flutes he just feels like it's his uh, calling mm-hmm. so i'm just gonna read uh what he said in the chapter boy named crow um i made this flute out of the souls of cats i've collected cut out the souls of cats while they were still alive and made them into this flute. I felt sorry for the cats, of course, cutting them up like that, but I couldn't help it. This flute is beyond any world's standards of good and evil, love or hatred. Making these flutes has been my longtime calling, and I've always done a decent job of fulfilling my role and doing my bit. So another, like, it's fate. This is what I am born to do. And I'm also, I guess, yeah, like a cog in this capitalist system. If, yeah, if you if you go with the New Yorkers' um, theory that he represents capitalism, then I guess not just capitalism, but just like you know, like, like adults' role in in the and complicity, I guess, in the capitalist systems as a cog. Yeah, like your role is to create this thing. It's not up to you whether it's used for good or evil. That's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to make this thing. Even if the process of making it is kind of violent. Yeah, unethical. Yeah, does violence to two things. And, I mean, I think in that case, I guess it does. It's interesting that he makes it out of cats. And that in this story, he imbues the cats with personalities. Right? Yeah. Um, because, you know, I guess some people might not have as much sympathy for, like, stray cats. But if you give them a name and a personality, then all of a sudden they're like people. Right? Yeah. Um, I don't know if that was what he was going for. That's my galaxy brain moment right now. I think so. I remember someone saying in a review that it was a reference to another Japanese novel. I am a cat. Uh, I forgot the author's name, but, like. Yeah. It's a reference to it. There's a lot of references <laughs> in this book, and obviously I'm not well read enough to catch all of them. Right. I just remember that there was another epic battle that happens after Nakata dies. And oh, it's with Hoshino, right? Yeah, with Hoshino like tries the... to close the entrance stone. Um, and then this like blob monster comes out, right? Or some yeah, sort of yeah. like monstrosity. Yeah. Was that Johnny Walker or was that there are theories about it being Johnny Walker slash Kafka's father spirit. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> but I thought that was like pretty um it was it was it was pretty weird because all of the weapons that Hoshino uses, it it's like completely useless. Mm. He defeats him by smashing him with the entrance stone, right? Yeah. 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 Actually I, I enjoyed Hoshino's character. I think Hoshino was like the most dynamic character. Yeah. Um, I love that he developed an appreciation for classical music uh, to the point where, like, something that people don't learn, like, when they hear classical music is every symphony or every recording is different because of how the conductor or how the people play it. And so, like, it was really fun to see him come to this realization that, like, he really likes this version of this Beethoven suite, but not this other version. And to be able to articulate that to people. It's like, wow, you learned culture. Yeah. Good job. I learned a lot about Beethoven <laughs> in, in this book. 
Yeah, I mean, I, that's a. I guess that's another one of Murakami's styles, right? Yeah, he he does, does write a lot about music, uh, which is what I've heard. He actually wrote like a nonfiction book on uh, on on classical music. He, mm. He's like friends with this. Uh, um, I I don't know if they're a conductor or composer, but like he did kind of like an essay about him. Um, also, Haruki Murakami uh, used to work at a record store when he was a, a teenager. And uh, after he graduated from college, he opened up a jazz club <laughs> and it was called the Peter Cat. Like, I think I think a Peter Cat or something. It had cat in the name. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a theme for it him. It seems like a theme for him. Yeah, I guess um, I was expecting more or some reference to Schrodinger's cat for some reason, but I guess. Um, I mean, isn't that like kind of like kind of included in the book? I don't know. I feel I felt like. It, I, yeah, with, like, I mean, with, like, like with like the whole with the whole dad thing, like, yeah, with the whole dad thing and also just like like all of the dreams in the book is like, oh, did you really kill your father? Did you not kill your father? Like, <laughs> did you really rape your sister? Did you really have sex with your mother? I don't know. It's a dream, right? That's true. I mean, it reminds me of like dreams that if I've had, like lucid dreams where at some point you realize you're in a dream and then all of a sudden you're like, okay, so none of this matters, right? I ha- I've had a dream where I literally like, like, I think crashed my car or something. I was like, shit, like I'll pay for all this stuff. And then also it's like, wait, this is a dream. I don't owe shit. I don't owe anything. I'm good. So you just like ran around being like, <laughs> I'm free. <laughs> I'm free of capitalism. Um. <laughs> maybe maybe that's why I like didn't really jibe with this book. That is pretty much like a dream. Just like a dreamscape of a novel. I don't really dream. Really? I don't. The um, Usually when I sleep, I just kind of blackout i don't really oh. remember. the only dreams i remember are uh, are nightmares and oh. um and there's plenty of nightmares in this book too yeah I, I mean my nightmares kind of are can be put into two different categories one is like where i'm like really really stressed out before i go to sleep and uh-huh. then and in my dream like everything goes wrong it's like oh i like like i'm late to a meeting and then i do like a presentation but like but then you realize fail. the dream. No, I never realize the dream. I don't realize it until I wake up. Oh, and then I'm terrible. like, oh, fuck. Like, like, because you stress out that entire time and you don't know it's a dream. And then the other one is like supernatural stuff because I really, I, I'm afraid of ghosts and dolls and a lot of, a lot of supernatural things pop up in, in those types of dreams. So for those, I'm like, oh, this is a dream, but I also can't get out. <laughs> so that's uh that's terrifying yeah so i don't really like i don't really dream and uh haruki murakami he actually said in an interview that he doesn't dream either he writes uh-huh. so all of his books are pretty much his dreams his dreams i can see yeah that i guess i feel like i mean that's where the it's like Inception, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the metaphysical aspects of his story definitely make more sense that way. Um, yeah. If everything is like, if everything's a metaphor. Uh, I know like Norwegian Wood is the only realistic novel. Mm. That is what people have been saying. Like there, 
there are dreamlike qualities to it, but it is like very linear and very, yeah. very, very different from all of his other books. Yeah. I am curious to read his other books. I haven't closed the door on Murakami yet. And I think that is quite an accomplishment for me. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's interesting enough that, like, I am definitely curious on what other Murakami books read like. Um, are they all about horny 15-year-olds that are buff? No, I actually heard that most of his characters are, uh, like, in their 30s or adults. This was kind <laughs> of like a change of pace for him. Oh. That's good. But I heard that... Um, one of the flaws of his novels is that characters kind of repeat themselves. Mm. So it's like you'll if you read one Murakami novel, you've kind of read like a whole bunch of other Murakami novels. Because right. characters seem similar, themes seem similar. I mean, I guess what would um to wrap um, there's so to much wrap up. Yeah. There's so much of this book that we haven't talked about but i feel like those are just details like stuff like the military reports and what happened to nakara and oh actually actually that that fucking scene with the teacher beating the crap out of him because (laughs) he like found like her sanitary pads with blood on it i was like i was like oh there's something really just terrible about men writing about women's periods because mm-hmm. like the teacher's like you don't understand it's it's like the most embarrassing thing that can happen to a woman and then before like the whole like period incident she has like this very visceral dream about like having sex with her um her ex-husband and as she's like going on this field trip with the kids she like her monologue said her monologue says like, oh, I can still feel him inside me. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I'm, So much pain in this story. So much penis in the story. And, and like, I just... That was when I was like, oh, Murakami's not, not very good with writing female characters. Because if this, if this is what he thinks that... Uh, thinks about women in general, uh, he needs <laughs> to do some digging. And, ob- like, yeah. I feel like I was warned about that before coming in. Yeah, we were right. warned, and I still wasn't prepared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So wrapping up. Yeah, I mean, there's so there's still so much that we could be talking. I think we hit most of the big points. Like, I don't really have everything else would be like just pure speculation on what we think things meant. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, if any of you have, um, but if any of you listening have any thoughts about either what we've talked about or things we haven't talked about, um, please, please um, let us know on the Goodreads forums. Um, we'd love to hear what you think about this book because I feel like this, this is the type of book where there's a lot of thoughts. And like you said, this Murakami is a very polarizing author. Mm-hmm. People love him or hate him. I would say there's no in-between, but I feel like we're kind of in-between. Yeah, we're kind of in-between because I feel like you and I, like because we have watched, we because we have consumed so much media that yeah. uh, is kind of similar in style, we kind of get what he's going for. Yeah. And it's like, just like, okay, I get what you're going for. I get why you're so like celebrated as an author. Yeah. But at the same time, it's not really like some, like for me, it's not really <laughs> something that I like really resonate with. It, it wasn't like, I didn't feel like my mind or world was blown by yeah. reading this book which i kind of like i was 
kind of expecting, I guess, because of how highly people talk about him. But like in terms of like what type of story this is, I mean, it's definitely something that on paper we would enjoy because I think, um, I mean, I know you're a fan of slice of life stories. Mm-hmm. I'm a fan of like metaphysical bullshit. Like there's stuff in it that like should hit our buttons. But at the same time, I did feel a little underwhelmed, I guess. Yeah, like, it, it didn't feel like it was like my worldview has not changed. Yeah. You know? I was I was telling Marvin earlier before we started re- started recording that Murakami is kind of like the literature version of David Lynch, the director <laughs> of director and creator of Twin Peaks, and I really don't like Twin Peaks. So, <laughs> so it's just like I I get why David Lynch is like really really celebrated and why people love Twin Peaks. I mean, uh Dan and uh, some of my close friends, they really really love Twin Peaks. Mm. So it's like, I'm not one of those people and I'm probably never going to uh, really be a fan of Murakami, I think. But I am curious to read his other books and yeah. I will give him a shot before I close that door forever. <laughs> yeah. And then going out that I think I am one of those people who like, I haven't seen a lot of Twin Peaks. I watched the first couple episodes and I kind of just fell off because... I heard that you have to get past like the first five episodes to like really get into it. But I do get the fact that like it's the type of story where you want to, after you finish it, you want to read other people's reactions to it, and to see catch the things that you missed and see what people think everything meant. Because like you said, like like we've said multiple times in this in this podcast, everything's a metaphor for something. Everything means something. Um, Like it's it's a book full of Chekhov's guns. Like oh. Like, he's just showing barrels left and right. Like, which of these will fire? They all will. But will yeah. you catch it? Um, and, like, it's a type of thing. Like, because I'm the type of person who will fall down a wiki hole on, like, tvtropes.com and just read about everything that people are thinking about everything. And so it's it's not – I don't know if it's healthy or not, but it's – I think it's useful yeah. for – you know, and ana- like it's analyzing good. things. It's good for trivia because now I know a bunch of useless bullshit. So I'm like, if anyone ever needs a trivia partner, uh, I'm your guy. With that said, this month's book club pick is Zero Sum Game by S.L. Huang. It's a thriller and it's going to be quite different from Murakami. And <laughs> I am very excited. Um, I just bought the book on um, on Amazon. It's on my ebook, so I am really excited to dive into it. Yeah, looking forward to it. We'll be talking about Zero Sum Game on our next episode of Books and Boba at the end of the month. Thank you all so much for joining us and listening to our discussion of our very first Murakami book, um, Kafka on the Shore. Um, I guess, you know, it'll probably be a couple months or a year until we assign our next one if we do. But, is this uh, going to be an every year thing? I, I feel like I feel like Murakami publishes his books fairly often. I feel like we'll never catch up. <laughs> I don't think we're going to read his whole like catalog of books, but I think yeah. <laughs> I'd love to. I kind of feel like if we don't assign it as a book later on, I'll never read another one. So I kind of need to. I, I need. I need to push. We rest. What I need. I know. I totally would not have finished this book unless I had to <laughs> for this podcast. <laughs> um. Yeah, and you know. I feel like it's worth seeing, especially if this book, like people say, is kind of an outlier in terms of characters. Um, I kind of want to see what another story might look like. So I feel like chances are high that we'll read another one eventually. 
um, just not for a while. Not for a while. <laughs> I think my brain really needs to recover. Yeah. Um, but thank you all for listening. Rira, thank you for um, joining me in this. I, I, it was fun talking about it, you know? That's right? true. <laughs> if you read this book by yourself, I feel like you would kind of be itching to talk to it with someone. Yeah. Either like someone who's never read it and you're like trying to describe this book to them i feel like it's really hard to describe murakami books to people because i've definitely had people try to like get me to read murakami for years and i'm like i don't understand anything that you're saying about this book to me well it's like someone trying to explain i don't know a persona game to someone or no i feel like that's really simplistic have you tried explaining it to someone? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like a normal layman person? Teens with magical powers with magical demon cards. I they mean, go into different worlds and they have to save everybody. That is the most simplistic terms that you can... I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess without going to the Jungian um, psychology and all that, all it, that it's, jazz. It's like what Murakami says in Clock on the Shore. You don't know until you experience it. <laughs> And with that, thank you all for listening to this episode of Books and Boba. Um, Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American hosted podcasts. Um, check out our other fellow Potluck pods by going to the website podcastpotluck.com. And thanks also to Future Communications. Um, this podcast was recorded at the VC offices in downtown LA. Um, check out their programs such as the Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival at vcmedia.org. And as always, you can find us at booksandboba.com. And don't forget to join our Goodreads group um, to chat with us about book news, your thoughts about the books that we read, and to um, let us know what's going on in your world. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. Bye, everyone. Hey, I'm Bill Yu, and you may know me from a blog called Angry Asian Man. And I'm Jeff Yang, author, journalist, and celebrity dad. We host a podcast called They Call Us Bruce, an unfiltered conversation about what's happening in Asian America. Each week or so, we host a discussion about some of the most vital and interesting topics in our pop culture and our community, bringing in guests who are shaping and informing this thing called Asian America from Hollywood to D.C. and beyond. Uh, We've got media, entertainment, food, family, politics, representation, the good, the bad, the WTF of it all. So check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at theycallsbruce.com. Peace. Peace.